136 here on News Talk 830 WCCO. I'm Jason DeRussia filling in for Chad Hartman today. It is time for Playing Politics, our weekly uh, special discussion that we do in partnership with the Star Tribune editorial board. I'm joined right now on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus hotline with John Rash from the Strib editorial board. John, nice to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I didn't think I'd be talking to you next uh, from the guest bedroom in my uh, Maple Grove house. (laughs) I think things have changed with everyone, and you're right. You and I have had the opportunity to speak on the WCCO television set several times, and then, of course, off air many times. But good to reconnect here on the radio, and uh, good to hear your voice in WCCO. So thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. It's good to have you. What a crazy election cycle for sure. We have seen on the presidential level locally a flurry of TV ads placed by President Donald Trump that have been uh, taking on uh, Joe Biden, not Joe Biden himself, really, uh, the technical uh, part of the commercial that makes it technically uh, only misleading, not untrue is that his commercial highlights that Joe Biden's supporters advocated defunding the police. It's a pretty scary ad. I assume you've seen it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen it a million times (laughs) because it runs a lot. Do you think this issue, uh, the idea of President Trump being the law and order candidate uh, and the Democrats, the defund the police party, uh, does that have traction? Does that work? Or are, uh, I think President is going in the wrong direction here. Like nearly everything in his campaign, it has meant to energize the base, but probably won't go beyond that. And indeed, a recent poll that just came out suggested that voters thought that things may be more unsafe if President Trump were reelected, and partly because perhaps they're afraid he'll inflame the situation even further than we've seen during this summer of protest and pandemic. And so I think that, you know, with those who are his core supporters who believe these ads and believe that Vice President Biden would bring policing in the wrong direction, they certainly may be effective. But I think with the general public, Joe Biden doesn't come across as someone who is going to be such a sharp departure from most mainstream Democratic approach. He has you know, as you well just well said, he has not necessarily, you know, said that he's for defunding the police, which, by the way, you know, another recent Pew poll suggests that most people understand the distinction that this doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get rid of the police, but that they're looking to reform the police. Those that are leading this movement should have chosen much better verbiage uh, in terms of how to present their ideas to the public here. But Public opinion polls, finally, I guess I would say, Jason, indicate that so far it has not necessarily dented Vice Vice President Biden's lead in the national polls. We'll have to see what impact it has with all the money that the president is spending here in Minnesota. Uh, Patricia Lopez from the Star Tribune editorial board also joins us here on Playing Politics. Hi, Patricia. Nice to meet you. Hi, Jason. Good to be here. You have been uh, covering the legislature for the editorial board, and what an absolute, uh, you know, 
for people who don't like specialists. Yeah, I had to pause. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a it's a certain type of show, is what I was thinking. Uh huh. Uh, you know, I think I don't know. Can you sense the frustration? Do I sound like a regular voter? Once again, here we are in special session. Now we're Uh in special session number two. And Uh I don't know. I I hear that there's progress behind closed doors. As always, there seems to be in our legislature. Nothing that all of us can see under the light of day. But what's going Uh on over there? Well, it's um, it's a lot of behind the scenes uh, negotiations, which I, for one, having watched this for uh, many years, more years than I care to say, um, is actually kind of a hopeful development. Um, that's that's where the progress is going to happen. If they come out of this, you know, if we look at the optimistic scenario, if they come out of this with um, a compromise on a bonding bill, and it'll be 1.8 stitched together from various sources, but still, that's a significant amount that will do a lot to help kickstart um, things. They do that, throw in some kind of a tax break um, that the Republicans want. The police accountability reform bill is headed to a House floor vote pretty soon. If you know That will have to alter a little bit, but if they could get a compromise on that, that is a really nice piece of work to have done. The CARES Act money, the federal money that came uh, to help communities is being distributed now. Um, they could turn this around pretty quickly, or they could let it all, uh, you know, spiral down and collapse in failed talks and, and then, what, punt to August? I don't think anybody wants that. Yeah. How involved is the governor in this? Well, I mean, the governor's office is there is always involved. Um, I, I don't know. Are they doing, uh, you know, three way talks? I don't I don't know that it's there yet. I'm, I'll need to find that out. Yeah. Um, when it comes to police, always... when it comes to police reform, mm-hmm. what what and I struggle with that term reform, right? Because one person's reform is another person's step backwards. But when it comes yeah. to redefining the future of policing, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. what's the what's the common ground that both both uh, parties agree on? Ooh, well, it's um, it's rather narrow. Um, I think you know the Senate relies more on voluntary measures. Um, the House less so. They're, I'm not sure I would say that they're terribly close, but um, I, I don't know that the distance is so far that there's not room for compromise. I mean, some of this has to do with acknowledging that police are, are people, the public, is ready for some changes on this. I think they've been um, you know, bludgeoned by the protests and protesters blinded. In the course of things, they've seen the militarization of the police. It's, it's frightening, and it's frightening the people beyond, uh, you know, those who consider themselves average law-abiding people. I, I think, and not that polls should dictate everything, but polls do indicate that people are ready for some changes to hold police more accountable. I would suggest one of the ones they really need to look at is this idea of qualified immunity and other things that make it hard. Um, to get rid of uh, police that, you know, maybe should not be in those positions. And and every department has a few. I think the majority of them are good, but every department has got a few who in any given situation take things a little too far. The, coal- the coalitions on this, 
are challenging, right? Because mm-hmm. to change some of the things that activists and uh, uh, Democrats at the legislative level, level want to change, in a way you're undermining some things that have been collectively bargained by a labor union, which is certainly a normal DFL constituency. So that's what, it, some of this is, stuff is, I mean, is, t- is tough, right? But, the, but this is actually where I think they could find some common ground, because I would think uh, Republicans, you know, without broadening it to the entire universe of all public sector employees, if we just focused on police because, you know, they carry guns in their normal line of work, um, you could you could argue that some things should not be subject to the union contract and that there has to be ways for a chief um, for a chief to run his department and not for the head of the union to run the department. And I, we've all seen this conflict in Minneapolis for many, many years now. And I've seen it going back to when I was um, a city hall reporter in Minneapolis in the mid 90s. It was the same tension going on. The same inability of the chief to effectively deal with things that they knew they had to deal with. And um, that's got to be the first step. Everything else, uh, Jason, is window dressing. John, does this play on uh, the national as well? I can certainly picture uh, Trump uh, talking about Minneapolis and talking about what's happening happening here. We've seen Bob Kroll, the union chief, on stage with Donald Trump at a rally before. It certainly does play nationally, but the issue transcends the city in which it originated, meaning the president's son infamously tweeted out that the rest of the nation is going to look like Minneapolis. And, you know, the city is invoked by the president and by some of his supporters as well. But because, tragically, this is there have been so many incidents in so many different cities across the country this is something that really resonates nationwide, and it's become a significant nationwide issue to the point where some sociologists have suggested that the Black Lives Matters protest and the, and the broader protests regarding George Floyd and social justice is the single biggest participation movement that they have been able to track in United States history. This is really big. So, yes, it was triggered um, you know, by the protests here in Minneapolis, but it is something that has become a campaign issue because it's a national issue, and it certainly may influence another event we'll be talking here on playing politics in the next week or two when Vice President Biden is expected to name his running mate, and that person, you know, may, the selection there may be influenced by this very issue. Yeah. We are going to talk, oh, go ahead. cities. It goes beyond yeah. cities because um, this is something that happens in all parts of the country. Um, so it's not limited to a big city um, United States. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we've seen in our suburbs in greater Minnesota, you've seen people uh, protesting in cities you would never guess would be protesting on this issue. So no question. This resonates throughout the state and throughout the country. We want to talk about opening schools, the political calculations at the state level, the national level, and the parental calculations, too, that we're all making. We'll continue talking with John Rash and Patricia Lopez, playing politics with the Star Tutorial Board when we come back on News Talk 830 WCCO. Playing politics with John Rash and Patricia Lopez for the Star Tribune Editorial Board. I'm Jason DeRussia. 
Filling in for Chad Hartman today, we're talking about schools and the political calculations of reopening. President Trump has pretty much uh, laid his stake clearly in the ground. He wants schools to be open for in-person. We really, I feel like we haven't had a huge indication from Governor Tim Walz what he's thinking here in Minnesota. Uh, We expect an answer next week, but uh, if you two were uh, placing a bet, what... uh, Patricia, what would your guess be? <laughs> well, um, you know, you, you've kind of put your finger on the problem already. Uh, the president wants schools to be open. Well, we all want schools to be open. But the question is how and how do you do it safely? Um, I think perhaps um, that is, you know, what the what the state is struggling with right now, because the logistics of opening schools to all students in, you know, about six weeks, are kind of unbelievable when you start to break them down. The transportation by bus that has to happen, the mass feeding of students at breakfast and lunch that has to occur. Um, do you require, the, require them all to wear masks? Have we supplied the schools with PPE so that um, teachers can have masks and stuff to you know, clean their classrooms down? Who's gonna clean those classrooms? How often? Is it every day? Is it twice a day? None of these things have really been um, Uh, gone over in any kind of detail, and it is now mid-July, and by now schools are usually well into their preparations. I'm I'm not going to, you know, try to make any predictions, but I think it would be extremely difficult to open schools safely at this point, and I mean safe for both the children and for the teachers and all of the people who are in there um, to do that by Labor Day. I, I don't see how that happens. John, you you can see where the president comes from, where they say, look, uh, very rare for a kid to get very sick from this. Uh, So why not at least send the elementary kids back? They seem to be at least risk and at most need of being in person in a classroom. Well, I think that, you know, certainly there is data that can support many different directions And I think that's partly what school boards are wrestling with. My kids' school system had an open online meeting last night that seemingly was very well attended by people at home on their laptops. And a tremendous number of questions came to all the administrators who are working tirelessly to try to figure out all of the questions and more that Patricia just mentioned. Yeah. You got to feel was, for them. It's an impossible thing. Oh my to gosh, do. Jason. Yeah. I mean, a normal school year is a challenge. Yeah. And this is something that there is no precedence over and no experience except for a complete shutdown, which is what happened in mid March in the previous school year. So my sense is they all have to wait to see. If there's going to be a statewide shutdown, seems unlikely, but that is, that happened in the majority of states when the pandemic first began. So they have to get a sense of that and then offer different options, including an online-only option. Um, my sense is many districts may opt for what is often termed the hybrid option, where students will be at school one to two days a week in brick-and-mortar um, uh, school, and then online learning for the other days of the week, not ideal for students, staff, parents, or anyone in the community, and and yet might be the viable way to go about this. And I think one last political point on this is all of this is more difficult, takes more 
thought and action than even a normal school year. So the talk from the president on down to many in his parties of cutting funds for schools is the antithesis of what's needed now. School systems and teachers and you know everyone within the school delivery system needs to have society have their back and help them out. And the idea of cutting them out of funds is the opposite of, of where this discussion needs to go. Well, but we know what's going to happen, right? Schools, their revenue is down because they've had no mm-hmm. continuing ed classes, no revenue from from uh, any add-ons, lunch purchases. You well, know, and got state no, revenues are down. State revenues are down. And then enrollment is probably going to be down because parents are going to turn to private schools that say, you got to drive your kid here, but we'll be open. And the private schools then have a huge advantage there, I think. Well, the private schools are going to have the same issues that the public schools are in how to provide, um, uh, you know, learning in a in a safe environment. And I and I want to remind people here that the science is not does not show that kids are bulletproof in this regard. It shows that they are less likely to develop it. But we have a 